Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara Life. Today, we are joined by another esteemed guest, Dr. Neil Shaw. We had the pleasure of having him as a panelist at our Empowered Motherhood Summit last April and knew we had to bring him onto the podcast to share his wisdom with all of you. For those of you who are not familiar with his work, Dr. Neil Shaw is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Delivery Decisions Initiative at Harvard's Ariadne Labs. He was recently appointed as the Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinics and is also the co-founder and vice president of March for Moms, an organization that advocates for equal access to maternal care. He is listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare and is a globally recognized expert in designing solutions that improve healthcare, specifically around maternal health and childbirth. So please join us in welcoming Dr. Neil Shaw. Well, hi, Dr. Neil Shah. It is such a pleasure to have you on the Sakara Life podcast with us today. Thanks, Whitney. I'm really happy to be here. We actually got to know you during our Empowered Motherhood Summit earlier this year and just thought you are an incredible speaker. You're so motivating and covering such important topics really around motherhood, around empowerment and how to speak up for yourself and how to have a healthy birth for yourself and for others. So it's great to have you here and to be sharing this information with our audience today. We like to start out every podcast by asking our guest kind of a big question. What do you feel is your mission here on earth? It is a big question, but it's one that I have spent so much time thinking about and modifying over the course of my career, but I think I've locked into it, which is to build a world in which every person can choose to grow their family with dignity. All right. I'm already crying. (laughs) It's really, really beautiful. Wow. Like why, you know, not to be judging on gender or anything, but how, you know, as a man in this world, did you come to that mission? Do you feel, why do you feel so called to it? There's so many ways of answering the why question. And it's probably because I have a great mom myself, but when I was a male in my early twenties, OBGYN was the last thing I ever thought I was going to do. You know, the way that medical school works, you go through every rotation, every specialty. And I picked OBGYN to do first because it was the one thing that I was obviously never going to do and I just wanted to get it over with. I was pretty hyped to just be in the hospital and like be taking care of real people. And I had a great time in, in the sense that like being in a room where somebody is giving birth, where you are witnessing people 
meeting their newest family member, there's like tremendous meaning in that. It's pretty great every time, even in the middle of the night. So I think that was really motivating. And then I went through all my other specialties or all my other rotations and really loved them too. And I had an impossible time choosing what I wanted to do. And in the end, what it came down to is that there's a couple things. But one is that in OBGYN, you give very little up. Like I'm probably the only OBGYN that genuinely misses treating men. Um, but that's like the only <laughs> thing that you give up. Like you do primary care, you see people access the system, you do surgery, you deliver babies. And then I think I was really just compelled by the people around me that went into the field. Like you can't do women's health for a living without caring deeply about social justice. It's not like general surgeons don't care, but when you're operating on a gallbladder, it's just different than when you're taking care of people during their reproductive phase of life. And you know everything about taking care of people who are in this phase of life made me realize like I had no idea what people that have a uterus go through. Um, and I've just sort of been following that curiosity ever since. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What have you seen? What moved you so much to go down this path? And especially with you're very involved with social justice. And what did you see that inspired that? Well, what I was seeing is, um, I mean, just to be totally clear, I think that a lot of uh, maybe activism skips a generation or something. But like my, my grandparents grew up in a colony um, and were involved in the effort to decolonize India. And the reason that my parents came over to the U.S. on an H-1B visa in the late 70s is because, like, the aftermath of that wasn't great. India was a young democracy, and the way to seek out opportunity in advance was to get a degree and leave. <laughs> so that's what my parents did. You know, I, I grew up with a, actually a lot of privilege, so my story isn't necessarily one of... Like a lot of immigrants, they found their way, but I, I actually grew up around doctors. And so like one of the biggest privileges I had is I always assumed that I could be one if I wanted to be. But I also grew up in a household where like at the dinner table, in my wife's family talking about politics at the dinner table is impolite, but not at mine. Like you can't mm-hmm. separate a person from the politics at my dinner table. That was just part of how I grew up. And then part of what I started to see is that maternal health truly is a bellwether for the health of society as a whole. Like if moms are unwell, society is unwell. And what you start to see is that almost every type of social injustice shows up in the outcomes of moms across our country, whether it's racism, gender inequity, geographic inequity, when you look at the plight of rural Americans, even generational inequity shows up in this whole enterprise of starting and building your family. So I think I just found that really compelling. It's, sorry, I'm still emotional from your first. (laughs) Danielle's still crying over here. I know that I am inherently privileged as a white woman and then some privilege even beyond that. And even I felt the indignities. Even I felt in my first birth, especially, I had planned for a home birth. And then at like 32 weeks, they found bossaprivia, which ended up self-correcting as it often does. So I had to switch to a hospital very last minute. And The disparity between the two, going from home birth midwifery care to hospital care brought me so much humility and also this weird sense of shame. I don't know how else to describe it, except the minute I got to the hospital, it was like my entire relationship to myself changed. My entire relationship to my birth changed. 
And it felt like even though I knew so much about birth, I knew my choices, I felt like I automatically had to give the power to someone else. And inherently by handing over my power, I don't know, I felt my birth go down a very different path, like almost in front of me. And like, it felt like in the hospital setting, for me, I didn't know how to get the power back. I didn't know how to take it back. And so for anyone listening who wants a hospital birth, but wants to have an empowered, dignified hospital birth, where do you start? What do you tell women and parents to be? That's a really good question, Danielle. And I think that your experience probably resonates with a lot of people's experience. I think part of my own journey into understanding this, because I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I, I don't have a uterus myself. <laughs> and I was trained in a big academic medical system where you have a really sharp focus on safety. And what that means, and like the way that you start to think about that is that people's experience is a secondary luxury that you get to after you've secured them. And I think that, you know, a lot of people have adopted that, right? Like nobody would really give birth under fluorescent lighting in a Johnny tethered to a bunch of wires unless they thought that was safer somehow. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we're starting to learn increasingly with the maternal mortality crisis in our country, where there are these really stark racial inequities, is that experience it's not about customer satisfaction, it's about dignity. You said indignities, that's the right word for it. And that actually attending to people's lived and embodied experiences the way that you make them safe, right? Mm -hmm. And we hear that over and over in the stories of black women in particular, but really anybody who's giving birth and it doesn't turn out the way that they want to, where they express concerns or just hopes or expectations that just aren't attended to in a timely way or at all. and. I think part of the challenge is like, there's something very black and white about mortality or like an injury during childbirth, right? But the whole system is really tuned to this idea that the goal is to like survive childbirth when like, that's like the floor of what people deserve. And we mm. haven't really defined well, like the ceiling, but that's what we should be aiming for. Exactly like you said, an empowering experience. There's a lot more to say about that, but I guess that's my opening gambit. Well, yeah, let's dig in more because it makes me feel like what you're saying is so true and it's a theme across so many different sectors, not just childbirth, but it makes me want to ask you what your personal beliefs are and your personal relationship to life after death or what death means because I think what is asked of us in the hospital and especially in my experience in giving birth was exactly what you're saying. It's like, the only outcome they're solving for is healthy mom and healthy baby. And it's at the cost of just about everything else. And in my home birth experience, I had to really ask myself what I was solving for. What I was solving for is, of course, healthy mom and healthy baby. But I wasn't actually sure if that was at the cost of everything else that I wanted this experience, this like divine heavenly experience that I felt like I could do and I felt empowered to do because of the people I had around me. And so do you feel met with your own spiritual understanding of what we're doing here every day when you go to work? I guess that could have been like the second to last question. I know <laughs> no, we're, no, we're, no, starting, I mean, we're starting heavy with you. No, that's okay. I don't know if I would put it as well as you did, but I do think that one of the reasons that I was really drawn to obstetrics in particular is like 
tonight I'm going to be in the hospital all night. And at 3 a.m., there'll be no existential crisis when I'm helping deliver a baby. So that's my way of really concretely thinking about that. And like, truly, no matter how tired I am tomorrow, I'm not going to be like upset about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess something that I feel very strongly about and has been like the animating impulse of everything that I've done professionally and will continue to do as I transition to like a new professional role is this idea that people's experience when they're vulnerable when they need care, it's not customer satisfaction, it's Mm. dignity. And customer satisfaction could be a luxury, but dignity is a human right, right? And the thing about childbirth is that you can't get absolute control and you can't get absolute comfort. You can't get either, right? And actually Mm -hmm. comfort and control are always in a tension with each other, right? If If you get an epidural, you give up your ability to walk around. You give up certain parts of your experience but you get a little bit of comfort out of it. And similarly, like there's this sort of tension. And I don't think that most people want absolute comfort or absolute control. They understand that you have to give some of that up, but they want to be able to cede control on their own terms rather than having it like wrested away from them. And I think that's one of the biggest opportunities that we have for our system. Yeah, I think that that's what I mean by feeling empowered. I think when I talk about an empowered birth, it's feeling like, you have a say in what you want or what you don't want, that you understand that you're informed, that you have informed consent, these types of things. So I went down the path of midwives for my prenatal care. And then after 24 hours of my water being broken and testing positive for group B strep, I transferred to the hospital. But before doing that, I had already pre-registered with the hospital. I had already put together a hospital plan. And the thing was, I gave birth out in Arizona and the hospital here, their default plan is dimmed lights. There's a bathtub in every room. They don't ask you if you want drugs or anything unless you ask for it. So they're not pushing things on you. Everything is really like an offer and wanting you to feel as comfortable and as good as possible and give you suggestions, but really they listened to me. And so my hospital experience was great. I loved it. I felt empowered, excited. In fact, my nurses and everybody like cheered me on when it came time. Like that makes me emotional too. This whole conversation about, you know, giving birth, And creating life is definitely emotional and so powerful. But I I felt like I had a team of support there to cheer me on and to make it happen. And so, you know, that's what I would love for other people giving birth to have is that support system and that network and that feeling of empowerment in no matter what type of situation you decide to give birth in, whether it's at home or in a hospital or or wherever. Wait, that makes me think a little bit more about, I guess, what I'm asking around the spiritual question. It's like, it's, we know that a woman has to be not only in her power and empowered, but also feel safe enough to give up some control, whether it's to her doctors or to the universe or to whomever this birthing person feels they need to surrender to. 
And so what are the ways that you either think hospitals are doing a good job of that or wish that they were? Like to create that environment of, okay, you can surrender. Because I have to admit, like that was a lot of my fear about going into a hospital was that it didn't feel like a place where I could surrender. Dr. Aviva Ram is one of our friends and she's been on the podcast a couple of times and she told us, you just need to birth wherever you feel safest. Some people feel safer in a hospital and some people don't and I really didn't. And so I guess I'm just curious as you think about creating a safe environment that's not just medically safe, but emotionally safe as well. What does that mean to you? I'm thinking of three things at once, but the first thing that I want to honor and recognize is that just that the reason that both of you are feeling emotional talking about this is because it's so deeply meaningful to you and to everybody else who goes through this experience. And that's part of what we have to recognize is that people have goals other than trying to emerge from the process unscathed, right? People have goals other than simply surviving. And there's actually an incredible parallel between beginning of life and end of life here. People at the end of life have goals other than simply surviving or simply living longer that we don't honor in our institutions. And similarly, at the beginning of life, people have goals other than that we don't always attend to. And interestingly, both birth and death, which are life's only two certainties, used to happen at home. And it's relatively recent in both cases that we've moved them into institutions. In some ways, we've made things better. And in some ways, we really haven't. And the parallels keep going. Like a living will and a birth plan are kind of the same thing. Such a good point. That being said, I think the other thing that I want to just recognize is that I'm glad that you had such a wonderful experience, Whitney, in the hospital. And, you know, that's in contrast, Danielle, to what you wanted. But in my view, there's nothing inherently safe about an OB or a midwife or a home or a hospital. It's really about the system that provides people with options and then puts it all together. And one of the things that I strongly believe is that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So if we have a system that's producing inequities in maternal mortality, really high C-section rates, all the statistics that keep showing up in the headlines, it's designed to do that. So the thinking about how to address it means that we have to like fundamentally redesign what's going on. The other thing that I really strongly believe is that a bad system will beat a good person every time. And a big opportunity that we have is to think about the opportunity to improve people's birth experiences in terms that are not personal. And really what I mean by that is like, and this is really coming to your actual question, Danielle, about like, how do you surrender? But fundamentally, like, how do you trust in the system? It is not the job of people giving birth to be more trusting. It's the job of the system to be more trustworthy. But to do that, you can't treat trustworthiness as a virtue only. You've got to treat it as like an output of a system that's either working or not working. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it turns out like there are things that you need in a system to trust in it that our current system doesn't have. You have to be reliable. You have to show up for people. You have to affirm their dignity. You have to really listen to them. And these are all things that our system is terrible at. Yeah. You know, I don't want to <laughs> scare people, but I do want to click into these mortality rates that you were talking about. Can you paint the picture of, of what's going on today? Well, the headline is that an American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was, and three to four times more likely to die if she's Black, and eight to 12 times more likely to die if she's Black and living in New York City. Those are really surprising statistics, and they probably are terrifying. That's wild. To put it in context, I think a big part of how I think about this is in terms of what's really changed generationally, because... It's really just been 
like this is one generation, right? I'm comparing people today to their own mothers. In that same time period, C-section rates have become 500% more common. So we intervene with major abdominal surgery in childbirth 500% more. And despite the fact that that surgery is designed to rescue people, people are not better off. Term infants are 0% better off and moms are 50% more likely to die. So I think that's probably the most damning set of statistics that I could lay out for the current state of the U.S. maternity system and why I think, thankfully, we're in a moment now where we're not only recognizing something that we're starting to call a crisis, much like the opioid epidemic, we had to name it to be able to see it. And part of the thing is you can't fix what you don't see and you can't see what you don't measure. We didn't even know that maternal mortality was going up until a few years ago. Wow. And what do you think is increasing the rate of C-section? Why did it go up 500%? It's not what most people think. So I'm going to start off by telling you what it isn't. Compared to like the early 1970s, moms today are older than they used to be. There's more obesity, there's more hypertension, there's more diabetes, there's more IVF, meaning there's more multiple pregnancies. And changing demographics in our country doesn't explain it because a healthy 18-year-old today is almost twice as likely to get a C-section as when she was born. So the point of that is you can't blame birthing people or women for the statistics. It's not that. It's also not people demanding C-sections. Less than a half percent of people demand them. And so despite media narratives to the contrary, like the math doesn't bear that out, it's actually not well explained by medical malpractice either. Because even in periods where medical malpractice policies haven't changed, it's continued to go up. And it's not actually well explained in an obvious way by capitalism either, which is probably disappointing to some people too. But it's true that hospitals get paid more for C-sections, about 50% more. So that's a lot. But even in periods where reimbursements haven't changed, C-section rates have continued to go up. I think what's going on (laughs) is that in life, and on labor and delivery units, we often face these dichotomous choices between doing the right thing and doing the easy thing. And the easy thing is not to support somebody in labor. It's harder. And over time, it's become more expensive. It turns out that the labor and delivery unit in New York City in 2021 has all the same functionality as the cardiac ICU. What defines an ICU is not a ventilator, but the ability to staff one nurse to one patient. And that's where Mm -hmm. all the cost comes from. And so the cardiac ICU can do that. So can the labor floor. The labor floor has um, the ability to track vital signs in real time, all the swiggly lines and all the monitors. So does the cardiac ICU. The only difference between the labor floor and the ICU is that the labor floor has operating rooms attached to it, which means it's the most intense treatment area of the whole hospital for what are fundamentally the healthiest people. And then you're like, you take a big step back and you're like, you take 99% of American women, you put them in ICUs and you surround them by surgeons and you get a lot of surgery. It's not rocket science. Wow. Wow. That's, that's wild. Blood. And what are your thoughts on doulas, midwives? Because I think, by the way, in my hospital experience, I was with midwives. So I hear what you're saying. And I ended in an emergency C-section for several reasons, none of which were biological. <laughs> they were all emotional. Nothing was wrong. She just wasn't coming down. And I was scared. And you can't birth when you're scared. And there was so much I learned in my second birth, having a home birth feedback. There was so much I learned about what safety actually meant for me and what feeling, you know, I have this theory that mothers really need to be mothered in the labor 
and delivery experience that that's kind of, you know, what helps one feel safe and you have to like be able to receive what you're about to have to give. And so what are your thoughts and and what are some of the stats on, you know, having doulas as birthing partners? Or I love what you're saying because it rings so true about it is so much harder to emotionally support someone through labor. It could be a couple minutes to a few days long. You don't know how long it's going to be. And it's so much harder than to just say, hey, let's go have a C-section because we know when it'll be. We, I can almost guarantee you'll be safe, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, where do you think the midwives and the doulas come into this conversation? And are they a, partly a solution to this crisis? 100% yes, they're a solution to the crisis. Also, I see the world in a lot of nuance. So where I like to start is, not a type of person, but what are the needs of a person who's pregnant or in labor? And what everybody in labor benefits from is support, physical and emotional, careful monitoring and coaching. And then the plurality of people, I think, probably do benefit from modern medicine in some way. We have a couple things that we do that I think are good for a lot of people. And then very few truly benefit from surgeons. But as I just described, we designed the whole system backwards, where 99% of people are in ICUs surrounded by surgeons, and actually the support and monitoring and coaching falls to the wayside. Like you wouldn't run a marathon without a coach or people cheering you on, but that's exactly what labor is, only without the opportunity to practice and train. So I think that's really critical. I think the other thing that's really important to recognize is that childbirth is inherently a team sport. For Homo sapiens, not for gorillas. Turns out gorillas deliver their own babies. There's no like gorilla midwives, and Whoa. gorillas have wider <laughs> right. That's surprising. But they, they have wider pelvises, and they have flatter skulls. But for humans and Homo sapiens to walk upright, we have narrower pelvises, and that gave us our hands back. So we have dexterity, and we have these big frontal lobes that give us social intelligence. And part of our evolutionary course was like we help each other out. Childbirth is a team sport. What that means is there's two complementary forms of expertise that are critical in a birthing room. One is the technical expertise of the person who's delivered thousands of babies and can recognize patterns and can do cervical exams. And then there's the lived and embodied experience of the person giving birth. Like at 3 a.m., nobody else can tell you how much energy they have to push, right? Like you, you need that information to decide what's safest. And it's kind of amazing because in 2021, there's no technology that tells you if a baby's going to come or not. You don't know how big a baby is until it's out. We can estimate, but we don't actually know until the baby's out. So you have to do an exam and you have to decide what you believe. And, and then on top of that, okay, so it's a team sport. We don't have any tech. That means that we have to talk to each other. And that team has to become high performing for one of the most important moments of our entire lives, even though they've probably never been a team before. Because you can't predict when someone's going to go into labor and the person going to labor can't predict who's going to be there that day. So that's just to point out, like, that's what we're working with. And that's true everywhere in the world, every time. Now, midwives predate obstetricians by thousands of years as a profession. And there was a paradigm shift in the early 20th century where obstetricians came in wielding instruments, forceps and really swung the locus of expertise from lived experience. The way you became a midwife was just witnessing lots of births to using instruments. And I think the pendulum probably swung too far. So I guess 
in summary, <laughs> I feel that there's a role for all of these kinds of expertise. It's not the case that obstetricians do everything that midwives do, plus operate at all. Midwives have a totally different expertise, and doulas have a really important role to play too. Part of the challenge is uh, there's three different kinds of midwives in America, and there's a thousand different kinds of doulas. And as a profession, we're really tribal. So in trying to actually engineer a better system, there's some real coalition building that has to happen, and there's some real organizing work that has to happen. And would there be a way that doulas could actually bring down the cost of a birth? 100%. There's really good evidence that's the case. There's really good evidence that midwives and doulas, but, well, no but. Let's just leave it at that. And like <laughs> yeah. the, the one thing that's evidence-based that decreases C-section rates is continuous labor support and doulas are the experts in how to do that. Yeah. And it makes me wonder too, if, you know, I have not personal stories, but as in they didn't happen to me, but I, I can think of just two stories off the top of my head of friends in labor. And then this badass nurse out of nowhere came in, had studied with midwives and did things that I think typically one wouldn't do in a hospital. Like one friend, she was pushing and the baby, I guess, was stuck. And the nurse like sat on top of her stomach basically and like pounded her fist into like, I don't know, I don't know, it worked. The baby's great. Just like applied like pressure to the top of her uterus and the baby came out. You know, I'm the godmother to that child. So it's not like it's seven stories away. And then one of my other best friends who just gave birth two weeks after I gave birth, I guess the baby hadn't tilted enough. So she was just like hanging out, wasn't coming down with the mother had been pushing for a few hours. She had transferred from home to the hospital. And I guess a nurse put her hand up into her uterus and helped turn the baby a little bit. And then the baby was born in 30 minutes. And of course, I don't think this is where what you're saying is so true. It's not like midwives are the be all end all. It's not like doulas are the end all be all. And it's not like OBs are. It's really like I love this narrative you're sharing, which is we have to be a team because you never know what's going to happen. And in one scenario, I absolutely want my OB by my side. And in another scenario, I want my midwife and another in all the scenarios, I probably want my doula. And so the ideal world really is that like coalition of all the support. But I guess that just makes birth even more expensive for yeah, that. And how, how do we change the system to, to offer that? That's a great question because we've proven it's possible. But first, I, I just want to say on the record, I'm not sure that the, the pounding on the uterus thing is necessarily what I would endorse. <laughs> but what I will say <laughs> is that a colleague and I have been looking into what the best nurses do differently for a few years because we found that you know the nurse that gets assigned to you in a hospital is like roulette. You don't know which nurse you're going to get. You may be lucky enough to know your obstetrician or midwife, but even that is pretty rare now, but you definitely won't know your nurse. And the nurse you get at one of the biggest academic medical centers in Boston can change your odds of getting a C-section sixfold. Wow. It's not surprising. So then we spent time trying to figure out like, what are the best nurses doing differently? And the signal that we can pick up is presence at the bedside. Cause you know, that's not common. Um, Whitney, your experience is not common. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, I, I cried when there was a shift change. So the nurse that I loved was leaving at 7 a.m. and the new one was coming in and I hadn't delivered my baby yet. But 
people know. really bond with their nurses. And then on yeah. top of the presence, there are a lot of things that do make a big difference that just take effort and thoughtfulness, like position changes and things that you were saying, Danielle. But to your question, Whitney, in different parts of the world, who's in the birthing room can look really different. Different cultures have bring different support people with them. Sometimes like the person's partner is there. Sometimes they're very much not. Sometimes the mother-in-law is there or mother. Sometimes people have doulas. Sometimes people have midwives. Sometimes, especially in really low resource settings, they have skilled birth workers who are just like EMTs basically. But the key is that everyone in the room will have access to different information. The person giving birth can tell you things that nobody else can, not just symptoms or preferences, but like how much energy they have to push, which is neither. The person who spends the most time at the bedside, whether they're the midwife or the nurse or the doula, can tell you things nobody else can. And then usually the delivering provider isn't the person who spent the most time at the bedside. And actually that has value too, because they're less biased. They can walk in and give you an objective take, right? And what we've lacked for centuries is a system to make sure that everybody is sharing what they know in a safe way. A couple of years ago, my team and I came up with a really simple way of just what we did is we took, there, it turns out every labor room in America has a dry erase whiteboard in it. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it just does. And they're usually for nurses to just sketch things and talk to themselves. Most people giving birth don't even know it's there. But what we did is we made a really big one that everyone in the room can see, including and especially the person giving birth. And we organized it into four sections. There's a place where you write down the name of every member of the team, starting with the mom. The place where you write down the things that only the mom can tell you. Then you write down the plan, and then you write down the next time the team is going to get back together again and talk all together. And that's so that moms don't feel like passengers on a plane that's being held on the tarmac without anyone telling them what's happening. That's it. That's the entire thing. Then we ran a trial that included tens of thousands of families and hundreds of clinicians on both coasts and in Oklahoma and the heartland. And what we found is it improves dignity. And specifically, it makes it more likely that people know what's happening to them, that they feel like their preferences make a difference that they have the role that they want in their own labor. It decreases C-section rates and it probably makes people safer too. Yeah, talk about feeling empowered. That really can help somebody feel empowered when they know what's going on. That it's just being, yeah, that type of information can make such a big difference. That was one of the biggest things that surprised me in my hospital experience. It's like I'd spent all my time with one midwife and then switched. And then for the last, I guess, eight weeks, I was seeing my hospital midwife every week. So I obviously had somewhat of a relationship with her. So I figured she'd be by my side. And then you get there and my birth was, I was in the hospital for, for, well, before the baby was born, I was there for two days. They let me labor for two days. Um, which I know is a lot for a hospital. Like she, they really let me earn my (laughs) my C-section, which I'm very grateful for. But I saw her maybe like 10 minutes in 48 hours. And it wasn't until the end that she was really there. And in the end, she was really there. She actually assisted my C-section. But it's like, that is one of the seeds that I think you're speaking to, obviously, but I think we could fix. It's like, what if... What if the nurses were there? What if, you know, doulas were covered by insurance and doulas actually come to every single prenatal appointment or at least, you know, the last five? As you're talking about this team building, it makes me think about some of the team building things we do here at Sakara, And it really is time spent getting to know each other 
And I know that you might have a different nurse, but in the world where you might have a different OB, you end up usually meeting them at least. Like you have one of your prenatal appointments with them. And so is there a world where, I don't know, you could at least meet the nurses in your prenatal appointments before or something? But I guess your appointments are usually not at the hospital, so that would I be I didn't difficult. get to meet my OB or anybody going well, into right, but it. That's because you were with midwives. The same with me. Right. But if you had been with your OB, would have. Well, I mean, I, I've spent the last uh, 15 years trying to think about how to address this at almost every level from like policy to putting whiteboards up in hospitals in Oklahoma and then proving that talking to each other makes a difference. Wait, so I didn't just solve that for you in two seconds? Well, no, Your 20 I, years of work? What do you mean? No, 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 no. I, that's just to say that, um, that, wasn't, that wasn't necessary to lay out my credentials or anything. It was just no, to say just that kidding. I've tried at a few different levels and I, and I think that we've made a difference on, in all of them, honestly. So like, I think changing something this big, like the enterprise of how people give birth requires solutions at every level. And this whiteboard thing, it's sticky enough that I think it'll be in every labor room in, in America and hopefully beyond that before too long. Right. That's and it's amazing. just, it's a simple idea, but it works on the policy front. We have a whole package of federal legislation that's trying to do things like make sure that doulas are reimbursed and that we're like tracking data appropriately. There's so much momentum in Congress right now to a degree that we've really never seen in maternal health. And that there's a lot of reason for hope there too. And then I guess the other thing that I'm thinking in hearing what you're saying, Danielle, is that two pillars of any system are continuity and coordination. The continuity is like being known by somebody who sees you through the whole process. And then the coordination piece is really this like teamwork thing that we're talking about. So it doesn't feel fragmented with different people knowing different things and not putting it together. And what I've started to believe, I've been slow to adopt this, but our brick and mortar healthcare system is really, really slow to change because moving walls is hard, especially when people are giving birth in ICUs. But I think there's a lot of potential in the virtual space. You will never deliver babies virtually. But one thing that we can do when you take geography out of the equation is make sure that in the brick and mortar system, if you have to cancel an appointment, it takes forever to reschedule. It's a pain. And they might not even call you back. But we now have the capability to connect somebody to a trusted provider that they know within 27 minutes on their phone. And that's really, really exciting to me. I think that that really could be the future and it could make a difference. I love that idea. It's such a great idea. And it's exactly what I ended up doing in my second birth. My midwife really wanted to meet my doula. And so they had their own Zoom conference without me. And then my doula joined a Zoom with my midwife. And then (laughs) I had this perfect plan as I think every mother does. Even though I learned my lesson in my first birth, I still had a plan. And so I gave birth upstate in in Rhinebeck. And so my doula offered to like come up. She would drive from the city because my midwife was already up there. And I was due in late December and he didn't come and the baby didn't come till January. So my doula was stuck with us for like two weeks waiting for this baby. But in that time, my doula and my midwife had cultivated this really beautiful relationship. And now, you know, outside of my birth and me, they have their own relationship now and work together a lot. And it made a huge difference because I watched them rely on each other. I watched them, you know, have communication about me and it didn't feel like, oh, they're going to talk about me. It felt like 
I don't know, it felt like they were looking out for me and they had this like deep understanding of where I was emotionally, spiritually throughout the birth because they had had that time with each other and that time to connect. So I think that's a brilliant idea. Well, first thing is that it's okay to make plans, even if they don't turn out exactly like you wanted them to. And (laughs) and anybody listening, uh, especially when you're thinking about motherhood, like planning is okay. And I think replanning based on new information is always a good idea. Mm -hmm. Because nothing about parenting uh, goes exactly according to plan. It's a constant experiment and readjustment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things about your story that's kind of remarkable is that, like, there's real distance between New York and Rhinebeck, you know? Um, That was a lot of commitment on both of their parts. And one of the things I'm excited about, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember this, but, I like, going to Blockbuster was a thing. People would go and they would rent DVDs. And then, like, Netflix started mailing you DVDs, like, for a while before, like, we were streaming. And right now, we're not in the Blockbuster area. We're not in the streaming era. We're definitely in the era where it's possible to mail you the DVDs. I think there's a lot of things that we can do if we were to really leverage technology and healthcare the way that we do in every other aspect of our lives. If you think about it, like we don't, I mean, if you live in the city, you probably like have groceries delivered to you. Like there's so many things that you can do now by just using our ability to be connected in new ways. So I'm, that's part of really what I'm excited about when I think about the future and what the healthcare system could look like in the next couple of years. If you were giving birth tomorrow or in the next few months, say, what would you do or what would you recommend to a birthing person in order to feel empowered, in order to advocate for themselves, in order to set themselves up for the best potential outcome? Well, a few things. I think it's always important to be as informed as you can be and also to put like a balance on that. Like you don't have to have a detailed birth plan. It's okay, right? And the opening gambit from us as caregivers can't be like, what's your plan? What are your preferences? A lot of people don't know how to answer that question and that's okay. But the more informed- Where, you where do the- you find this information from? Do you have any resources you like? Well, I'm biased, but I think I mentioned at the top that I'm about to become the chief medical officer of Maven Clinic. And part of the reason is that I really trust them I think they they have really good content, but honestly, there's a lot of really good content out there now and a lot of awful ones. But I think historically, people have really relied on their trusted networks and people who've given birth before them or been pregnant before them. And that includes primarily friends and family. And that's okay too. With the caveat that literally every person has a take on what pregnant people should and shouldn't do. And most of it doesn't matter. (laughs) And really the most important message is that you should do what you feel comfortable with. That's probably the most important thing. And then that's true across the board. And then when you feel yourself getting uncomfortable, for whatever reason, it's not only okay to vocalize it, but it's important to. And then, well, layer onto that is if you feel like you're not being heard, which is often what we hear. Mm -hmm. um, One thing that you could say, especially to a person like me, I can't tell you what I would do if I was to give birth because I've never done that before. But what I can tell you is what things sound like to my ears as an obstetrician. And if someone were to say to me, you know, this may seem really normal to you, but I'm really scared or this feels really different for me, that would get me to pump the brakes for a second. Because from my perspective as an OB, most of my job is to reassure you. Mm. Like pregnancy and labor is uncomfortable. And most of what we see is normal, except for when it's not. But most of our job is to be like, actually, you know, I know it's uncomfortable. That's okay. That's sort of like what we expect. 
And if, if someone were to push back a little bit and be like, I know that might seem normal to you, but I'm really scared, that would get me to like pause and pay a little more attention. And sometimes it's frankly the difference between not to scare people, but like life and death. And sometimes it's the difference between being really empowered and the complete opposite. You're incredible. I'm so grateful that you are doing this work. You have such a empathic heart and, and mind, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you're in this space working to, to make it a better place for birthing bodies. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And th- thanks for making this space to talk about it. And then we would love for you to, unless you think that that was your light work, we'd love for you to offer a light work uh, to our Sakara Light listeners. Well, I don't know your audience as well, but I would imagine that some of the audience includes people who are not pregnant at the moment. Yes, many. But probably care about some people in their lives who are pregnant or have people in their communities or vicinity who are pregnant. I guess the work or the call to action is to not just be kind to those people in your life in the general sense, but to really think specifically about what you can do to support them. Because pregnancy, birthing, parenting, it's a time of incredible vulnerability for everybody. Some people more than others, but socially, biologically, like so many things are changing and you can just make a huge difference in people's lives by supporting them in the tiniest ways. So I guess that's the work is to think about somebody that you know, or is in your proximity and what you can do to help them. That's beautiful. Love that. One thing I didn't uh, get to say, but I have some anxiety around all the incredible midwives I know who are now retired, like my midwife is retired. And I feel like there's this class of incredibly knowing, experienced minds that are now out of work or out of the work retired. And I wonder if there's something to do there with Mm -hmm. all of that knowledge. If there's, I don't know, courses we can add to medical school or yearly conferences, or I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of knowledge that's now in retirement and it gives me anxiety because I don't think that we're in the world that we used to be where when they were coming up, where you just teach another person everything you know. It does feel like a different world. And it's. I think there's also been a lot of progress, which we didn't get to talk to. I mean, I think about even though some of the stats are scarier, I think there's more room for empowered birth now than there was when my mom was birthing the age of chloroform, et cetera. But anyway, I don't know if there's anything to do with that body of knowledge and those people out there, but it could be interesting. It's going to be okay is what I have to say about that. I think there's two intersecting trends. The first one speaks to, I imagine most of the listeners are not like birth workers. They're just like people that are living their lives. And I think people that are birth workers, whether they're obstetricians, midwives, or other kinds of clinicians, doulas, they deserve our empathy too. There is a large amount of retirement happening right now. And it's because we just went through a once in a century pandemic and people were burned out before it. And they're really burned out now. That being said, there's never been more momentum or organization to improve childbirth in America than right now. In fact, I think where we are right now is where HIV AIDS was in the early 80s in terms of people getting organized. Like AIDS was an epidemic that was primarily affecting a stigmatized population of people and nobody cared about them. 
The Reagan administration didn't care. Pharma companies didn't care. They were getting leftover chemotherapies. They didn't work. They made things worse. People were dying. Nobody was paying attention. And communities in New York and, and San Francisco organized. And they compelled people like me in academic institutions to change everything about the way that we operate. So you can't do HIV AIDS research today without a community advisory board. They got AZT. They dropped mortality from AIDS by like 70%. And in, in the birth world, we're seeing the emergence of the same thing. We're seeing the recognition of a crisis. We're seeing that some people are being disproportionately impacted. And we're seeing huge amounts of community organization. Year after year, the number of community-based organizations that are training up doulas, that are passing along this knowledge, is just proliferating. So both things are true. And birth workers deserve our empathy, but also I'm seeing so much energy right now and, and, and new people coming up. So it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's beautiful. And that's so inspiring and amazing. And you feel it. I mean, I feel it as a mother. I feel, I know I'm living a much more privileged kind of motherhood chapter in, than my mom was. Like, it's never been cooler to be a mom. <laughs> And Instagram really allows me a platform to find community, to talk about what I'm going through, to see what other women are going to. Of course, there's the flip side of the coin, et cetera. But I think um, in our digital social world, there actually are a lot of pros in the motherhood and birthing space. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. You're amazing. And if we can ever support you in any way or support your work, please let us know. Well, vice versa. I'm happy to come back anytime Thank you for all that you're doing. And this is a great conversation. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com. Or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs>